Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us as we continue our family Bible studies in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're winding down. We're just a few episodes away from completing our studies in Matthew. I've hoped you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed preparing it. And today and next episode, I want to be talking about the blind side. Uh, You might have seen the blind side movie and what it's talking about, that if you're a right-handed quarterback, you have a blind side on your opposite side, your left side, where a 316-pound muscle-bound defensive tackle blasts through the line and flattens you. And 316 pounds is the average weight of an NFL defensive tackle. Now, a defensive tackle, uh, or excuse me, a defensive tackle protecting the quarterback is protecting his blind side. And, And something that you might tend to ignore can lead to literally being flattened. And it's my observation, and these are my observations, somebody else may have different observations or may not have any observations, but it's my observation that the Catholic Church in our day has two blind sides. I'm going to be sharing about one of those, and by a blind side, I'm talking about a missing ingredient in the current understanding or application of our faith that really... Uh, leads to a deficiency of faith, and we're living in a day when we don't want to have a deficiency in our faith in any way. Now, I'm going to be talking on a topical study in Matthew chapters 24 through 26, and maybe a little bit into 28, and we're going to see a lot of repetitions. I'm going to do something, my guess, that you have never heard in your entire life. Now, this isn't something new and novel I'm pulling out of the air. I'm going to be citing scripture verses from the end of the Gospel of Matthew that you have probably heard over and over and over again in your life, but isolated from the other verses that say the same thing. Now, if you listen to the tone of my voice, I'll try to emphasize what I'm trying to get at, and you should get it fairly quick because I'm going to go through a number of verses and read them together. And that's what I think you may have never heard because what these verses teach is the main point of the entire Gospel of Matthew, and it's the main point of all four Gospels. And quite frankly, um, I did an undergraduate degree in theology, did pretty well, did a graduate school at seminary in theology, did pretty well. I never heard what I'm going to be sharing with you today. And it's not something that's um, novel, not something hidden. It's, it's all over. It's so obvious. Once you see it, hopefully you'll remember it. So I'm going to start reading some verses starting in chapter 24 of Matthew, and you listen to what you hear over and over and over again, because the reason it's repeated, it's because it's so essential, but yet the essential things tend to fall into our blind side. Here we go. 
Matthew 24, verse 27, Jesus speaking, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, verse 30, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Matthew 24, 37, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 39, And they did not know until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 44, Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Matthew 25, 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Matthew 26, verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Matthew 26, 24, hang on, we're almost done. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Matthew 26, 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Matthew 26, 64. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, I went through Jesus's teaching in Matthew 24 and 25 on the end times, then went into chapter 26, and you see not only in the end times teachings of Jesus, but also during what we call Holy Week today, the repetition, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Uh, what, what is he talking about? Like in 2531, the Son of Man's going to come and sit in his glorious throne. Or Matthew 26, 64, the Son of Man's going to be seated at the right hand of the power of God on high. Now, Jesus himself is teaching this, and he is identifying himself as the Son of Man. Now, what does the Son of Man mean? Now, in certain places of Scripture, so don't be thrown every time you see Son of Man in the Bible, if you look it up in a concordance or do a computer Scripture search, uh, it can refer as a formal address to a person, okay? No, nothing very special. But this is very special. 
Jesus is talking about the end of times, uh, his approaching death, crucifixion, and he's identifying himself explicitly over and over and over and over and over again, repeatedly. And this isn't just in Matthew, but Matthew's got lots of it. So what is Jesus getting at? Well, to find the meaning of the Son of Man in Matthew and the other Gospels, you turn to two incredibly important verses in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And before we get to Daniel 7, let's just, in our imaginations, move forward just a little bit from Holy Week. Christ rises from the dead. He's with his disciples for 40 days. And then what happens? He, a cloud, takes him up to heaven, and they see him going up to heaven in a cloud, but what happens then? Well, from the other side, you see him going away, but he's going to someplace, and that's the very throne room of heaven, and Daniel 7 is describing what happens because Jesus doesn't ascend to go up. It's not like riding an escalator. He's ascending to a throne. Listen, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. What is that talking about? That's the authority to reign as king and glory again, splendor of a king and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, not just people, people, peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and this kingdom in Daniel 7 is being compared to the four world empires. They were world empires at that time, and they're saying what Christ is inheriting here is an everlasting dominion because all those four world empires are just in the history books. It's an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So the whole idea is after everything that we call Holy Week, all those events, and Jesus ascends into heaven. He is ascending to the throne of the universe. He's installed actively and presently as king of this world. There's a professor of New Testament, British, although he comes and lectures a lot in the United States, by the name of Dr. N.T. Wright. He's been a professor at Oxford and Cambridge Universities, as well as St. Andrews. Uh, Newsweek magazine calls him the world's leading New Testament scholar. And this is what he said about all of these son of man and Jesus becoming king verses that are just repeated 12 times I just gave you from Matthew itself. And this is what Dr. N.T. Wright says, quote, we now come to the central claim of this book, how God became king, the forgotten story of the Gospels. 
all four Gospels are telling the story of how God became king in and through his story of Jesus of Nazareth. This is the central theme of the Gospels, the central theme of all four Gospels. Christians in the West have failed even to glimpse, let alone preach, the story Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell is the story of how God became king in and through Jesus. And Dr. Wright goes on to explain that Christianity is something radically and fundamentally different from what most people in our modern world think of as a religion. Because you think of religion, okay, and I'm not saying listeners to faith and family think this way, but I would dare say the majority of people who call themselves Christians think of religion. Okay, what's religion? Okay, I, uh, I go to church on Sunday. So religion is like the Sunday night TV show, 60 minutes, Sunday morning. Okay, and then if you're really religious, uh, you have a prayer time in the morning, you read your scriptures, Catholics pray their rosary, uh, that's being religious, and then you just kind of have an ethical leftover as you go through your day or your week. Well, that's not Christianity, okay? That might be certain kinds of religion or certain conceptions of religion, particularly since the time of the Enlightenment, where God is, is removed from so much of life, including the public square, that in Western nations— we don't have a conception of the active reign of Christ. At this very moment I'm speaking to you, this very moment is literally, not figuratively, not metaphorically, repeatedly, over and over and over and over again in the Gospels, he is the king of the world of all nations, peoples, individuals, and families. Now, according to Psalm 2, just a little personal note. You probably don't know this, but while I was still a Protestant minister, I wrote a little booklet. First thing I really wrote formally and published was on Psalm 2, and it talks about the Messiah becoming the king of the world, even though the kings, the uh, small k kings uh, of the world rebel against his rule. It says God in heaven just laughs because it's you know, there's no contest between the greatness of the kingship of the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, and that includes being king of the world. And in my estimation, this is the number one blindside in the Catholic Church and extended way beyond the Catholic Church to other Christian groups. The number one blindside of the Catholic Church in the last hundred years plus. There is a blindside papal encyclical. That's my term, just came up with it today. The blindside papal encyclical, the one that's only about a hundred years old, and it was by Pope Pius XI, totally and completely neglected. You know, they have a lot of papal encyclicals if you go into, if there's still Catholic bookstores around your area, 
and you might find different copies of papal encyclicals. It'd be a very, very rare bookstore to find a copy of Quas Primus. Uh, and it was promulgated by Pope Pius XI, and it's on the kingship of Christ, which is the main focus, the central theme of all four Gospels, according to the man who has been identified as the world's leading New Testament scholar. And what does Quas Primus say? It says that civil governments, listen carefully, have an obligation to explicitly acknowledge Jesus Christ as king of their country or face extinction. And by extinction, I mean basically self-destruction. Those are my descriptions of Quas Primus, but here's the very words that Pope Pius XI, the blindside words that he left us. With God and Jesus Christ excluded from political life and with authority derived not from God, but from man, the result is that human society is tottering to its fall because it no longer has a secure and solid foundation. Uh, You know, world empires, secular governments in the past and ancient history, you know, they, they came and they're gone. We can only read about them in history books. And Pope Pius XI told us that you can't exclude the kingship of Jesus Christ from political life. Again, I mean, if Christians started learning that their savior, who they love, is also king of the political arrangements of the world, I'll tell you, the secular people would go beyond nuts. They would just, uh, you know, everybody's protesting everything and everybody's offended by everything, but they would go over the top, guaranteed. And I realize I'm stepping on some toes here, but let me just be very clear because I love this country. I I can't conceive of anything greater than the history of mankind, and yet our foundation isn't secure. It is tottering, and I think I wouldn't have a whole lot of disagreement from Christians for that, but why? Well, our government is based on, ultimately, the ultimate authority I'm talking about, we the people. As Abraham Lincoln said in the Gettysburg Address, by the people, for the, no wait, by, for, from, of the people. What does that mean? That means the authority is residing in man. I'm talking about the ultimate authority. There's all kinds of different political arrangements that are quite acceptable, provided one thing, that the ultimate authority in any political arrangement since the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven on the first ascension day has to explicitly acknowledge that Christ is king of the world. Now, you may not be aware, but, you know, it was a good while until the um, presidency of Dwight Eisenhower that the Pledge of Allegiance of the United States added one nation under God. And very interesting to me, I did a little research on this, President Eisenhower was only baptized the year before he uh, 
basically signed the bill and making the Pledge of Allegiance, including that we're a nation under God. And it's very interesting also that one of the largest groups and first groups in the nation to start including under God in the Pledge of Allegiance was the Knights of Columbus. And through these efforts, we have a pledge, one nation under God. And that's good. That's a good step forward. But is that what Quas Primus was talking about? It's not one nation, Quas Primus, the blind side encyclical, isn't talking about one nation under a generic God, but one nation under Jesus Christ, who is God and man. Philippians chapter 2 isn't just a religious verse (laughs) in the sense of being confined within four walls of a church. Philippians 2 and verse 9 says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And that just doesn't mean genuflecting when you come into church, which you certainly should do. You're bowing before the king, the sovereign God. But everyone, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you could have a synonym for Lord and say, Jesus Christ is King. And you go through Holy Week, there's supreme irony going on. And, you know, I can't pray the sorrowful mysteries, but think of the irony because it took me a while. But uh, when I came to see that the kingship of Christ was so central to the whole message of Scripture and particularly the New Testament, that when you see things going on during Holy Week, it's just like, how could you be so blind? For instance, in Matthew 27, it says the, the soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium. And you, you all know this. And they got the whole battalion before him. And what did they do? They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Now, what's that for? Well, do you see uh, King Charles this week making some statement about Parliament? He's all in his fancy robes. Well, the scarlet robe was making fun of this Jewish Messiah, and the Jewish Messiah was supposed to be king of the world. It became a supreme joke with these Roman soldiers. Then what? They put a crown of thorns on his head. Well, every king needs a crown. Well, they crowned Jesus with thorns. They had no idea what they were doing, but they were doing it. And they didn't realize that through the suffering of the Messiah, he would be exalted. And then they put a reed in his right hand. Well, what does a king hold in his right hand? The scepter, the sign of his authority and rule. And then finally, kneeling before him, And that's why you should kneel before a king. They mocked him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. A perfect picture of what was actually was happening, and yet they just made a joke of it. And I believe in God's providence, he allowed those Roman soldiers to be so blindsided to the kingship of Jesus who was before him. How could this man possibly be king of the world? 
And then there's Pilate. Uh, again, I believe he was guided providentially, even though he condemned Jesus to death. What did Pilate do? He did a decree to put a sign with the charge what he was being crucified for. In other words, like a prisoner being executed, the governor of that state would read the charge. Well, the charge was, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. In case anybody would miss it, it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And then finally, Jesus comes back from the dead, and he says in Matthew 28, almost at the end of the gospel, all authority, all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does all mean? It means religious, moral, educational, judicial, political, cultural, national, regional, familial, and individual. It means everything. He's king. And at its core, the gospel, which means to evangelize, and evangelize means proclaim the gospel, the gospel is a declaration that Christ is king. And the apostles evangelizing the Roman Empire were like royal ambassadors sent from heaven to declare the new king of the world. And they didn't get thrown into the uh, lion's den because they wanted to go to church on Sunday and maybe prayer for, uh, a few minutes every day. No, it was they regarded all of life under the lordship of Jesus. And anytime a people will do that as secular governments rise in power, driving a power from any source but God himself, uh, they'll be basically be put to death. And that's Christianity. And we don't have any conflict but the apostles sure did. For instance, in Acts 17, talking about Paul and his apostolic men, it says, these men who have turned the world upside down. And it's surprising to me that I'm seeing the world turning the church upside down because of our blind side. But it says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here, Thessalonica, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying, there is another king, Jesus. That's evangelism. That's what turned the world's greatest secular empire into a Christian one, proclaiming the gospel that Jesus is king. And what happens when you don't have a king, and this will affect your children and grandchildren to the max, says in the Old Testament, when there was no king, every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the story of the modern world. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 466 of Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.